Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's topic is resilience. So we should start by talking about resilience in terms of how we define it. What do you think, Laura? What is resilience? I think about resilience as overcoming difficult circumstances or discrete obstacles in order to like achieve some sort of positive outcome or like outwardly identifiable sign of success. So resilience is both overcoming obstacles, but in order to be resilient, you have to have a positive outcome or you have to be successful in some respect. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's about right. I think it's a kind of toughness that comes from successfully navigating obstacles. The way that it's talked about in contemporary culture, resilience is often paired with the idea of grit, which I think is like a kind of courage that the culture right now is romanticizing about the kind of person that can manage the stresses of contemporary public life. And I actually don't see them as analogous, even though I think that they're really closely aligned in the way that we talk about overcoming adversity. Do you see resilience and grit being the same kinds of concepts, or do you think that they get wielded differently? I hear grit most often associated with discrete long-term goals, like the ability to accomplish particular goals. And resilience is like a long-term, like emotional quality of like being able to handle setbacks really well, whether or not they're related to a long-term goal or not. So grit to me has more application or is spoken about with more application. You know, you measure grit in these like discrete ways as a student trying to achieve academic success or get a degree or, you know, like an athlete. I, I see grit as being associated with particular goals. And those goals actually usually are not internally motivated. They're like externally Mm. ascribed goals. Yeah. I mean, I think that grit gets talked about as like an intrinsic personality trait that is often, I think, actually disconnected from intrapersonal achievement. So I think people talk about whether or not people have grit as some sort of, you know, measure of whether or not they have always had grit. Where I see resilience as something that people absolutely develop over the course of maturation as they encounter, you know, obstacles and setbacks. But I think that they sort of exist in in contemporary culture around conversations of of emotional intelligence and achievement. So I think that they, they get clustered in those kinds of conversations. And for me, I feel like resilience is a much more positive outcome for the way in which people deal with negative things that happen to them, whether it's professional setbacks or family tragedy or personal interpersonal violence or catastrophe. I mean, resilience is something that comes despite and because of tremendous adversity, where grit seems to be something that people want to locate in the individual as a way of explaining how they've been able to function in the culture. What do you think is the relationship between resilience or grit and emotional intelligence? I see conversations about 
grit and resilience now being used as an indicator that someone is successful. It's a, like an easily measurable kind of sign of emotional intelligence. And I mean, it's like a fad yeah, totally. <laughs> in, in psychology now. So there's like all of these studies coming out about like, how do you measure grit? I think it's begun to eclipse other types of emotional intelligence that are less easy to identify, like empathy and like humor and joy and things that might be equally important. And that might be collaborative. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the thing about grit is I feel like it's hyper-individualized, which makes sense because it's lumped with achievement, right? So like, you know, people who achieve then are gritty, right? The thing that they had was grit. They didn't have talent. They didn't have networks. They didn't have money going into the product. You know, like there are all these structural factors that are completely occluded by this, you're right to call it a fad, of assessing grit. But it totally makes sense, given yeah. that we're an totally. achievement-driven culture, that the priority, the biggest emotional quality that you can have, like as a student or as an employee, which is, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> what else, how else do you identify yourself? I don't know. Um, but what they're really measuring is, like, how willing you are to continue to work at such a high level under such tremendous structural strain. Grit is really measuring, like, how are you able to continue to function in a reasonable way despite wage theft and a lack of a living wage and violence in the workplace and no paid family leave and, 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 and. That's really what grit is, is measuring, I think. Or sociopathy, I guess. <laughs> for yeah. For centers. Yeah, to me, grit reads, you know, the, the conversation around grit reads a lot like the American dream narrative. Anyone can be successful if they are just good at overcoming particular obstacles. Like, anyone, <laughs> you know, you can rise to the top if you're gritty enough. Just like with that narrative, the monetary rewards at the top are immense. Like, if you lean in... <laughs> And eventually overcome all of the obstacles, even though some people have a lot more obstacles than others. It's not your like innate sense of grit that enables you to be like a captain of Titan of industry or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of other factors. And so it's irresponsible to say that grit alone is a measure of someone's ability to be successful. But I don't know. I... I think it's reinforcing the idea that you have to overcome obstacles to be successful. Mm -hmm. And it's reinforcing like that the onus of responsibility is on the individual and not structural systems that are creating lots of inequality. I feel like success, I mean, it's really like a lottery. It's more like a lottery than people realize. Except, like, it's kind of worse because you're being exploited <laughs> also. Yeah. Like, your labor and your time is being exploited, and narratives of grit perpetuate that, mm -hmm. and resilience perpetuate that, because it's like, oh, well, you grew up in a hard, in a tough neighborhood. You saw, like, you know, neighbors getting shot, or you were abused. Like, that's another thing you can overcome. And if you can overcome it, you'll be able to be successful. And I, I don't know, and if find not, that insulting. But if not, then you become part of the problem. Uh, and so begins the victim blaming. 
<laughs> right? So if you can't transcend the tremendous obstacles of structural oppression, uh, then it's your own internal problem that you didn't have enough grit to do it, which seems just like a huge problem to me. It also feels like, you know, the faddish studies about grit are studying people like lab rats, like how much strain, you know, it's almost like a maximization equation. It's like how much strain can we put on the average worker to continue to get X, Y, or Z output from them to not endanger the bottom line where we're still maximizing profits. That's what grit, grit conversation feels like to me, where resilience is, is, a, is an unintended sometimes byproduct of how we make sense of tragedy, whether that's, you know, a death in the family or a, you know, a massive ecological disaster or resilience is what happens, I think, when people turn their attention to trying to work through that trauma in a productive way for themselves. That is not the same as grit. <laughs> it's totally not the same. They have, they, they exist on different vectors but they both do relate to stress and strain and structural inequality for sure. I also think that resilience is a product of sometimes calculated risk. You know, we've talked about my pension. I have a higher tolerance for risk than most people. I think you do too. It's like calculated risk and the willingness to fail. We talk about this in the failure episode create resilience because you can only become stronger through a combination of success and failure. And calculated risk is the sweet spot where you can manage some of the risk and still try out new things and innovate socially. So for me, that's why one of the reasons why I think resilience is a much more positive thing because I think when tragedy happens to people, they, they have to innovate. You know, they have to innovate about how to rebuild themselves and their sense of self and you know, or their networks or their capital or their conception of family or, you know, their ideas of belonging or a whole host of tremendously intense identifications. And that can be, I think, a very positive space. You know, not that you would want people to go through tremendous social disaster, but I think resilience is what happens when people can sort of take the tragedy and learn from it in ways that are beneficial, not just to the self, but to others. And so for me, resilience has a much more communal feel than grit does, which is why I assume that all of the, you know, all of the Wall Street MBA folks like gritty, gritty people, <sighs> um, you know, but I don't know. I also think that there's a relationship between how people see the purpose of their time on earth or their time at their workplace or their relationship to others in their community, I think that's different based on whether or not people think they themselves are gritty or resilient. What do you think about that? Resilience is kind of scaled to uh -huh. like your circumstances in a way that grit isn't. Because grit is like your ability to overcome, again, like discrete failures. If you have more difficult circumstances and you're able to successfully manage them, then I think we're allowed to call you more resilient than someone who's led a relatively comfortable and privileged mm -hmm. life and has just surmounted the normal obstacles totally. of capitalism. So I think resilience is, is scaled in that way. And I see like grit being more about the the day-to-day -day obstacles that you overcome or even like, so there's this whole like 
narrative of the meritocracy. And I think to be like an elite person, like academically or athletically or musically, to like be elite at skills, um, it requires like so much practice and engagement. Just getting into a top school or like being a top performer athletically or or being one of the highest performers at whatever your career is requires so much time Mm -hmm. in this culture. It's not just about making it through difficult circumstances or difficult socioeconomic issues. Even people who are relatively comfortable, if they want to be successful in this way, have to like constantly be working. Even people at the very top are like constantly (laughs) facing competition. I think that that's part of it. I also think that there's a relationship between the constant conversation right now about grit rather than resilience and the relationship between privilege and fragility because the culture seems so fragile, right? I mean, white people, but I mean, white people seem so fragile and so they want to measure their own grit and their ability to survive. And they do that in the absence of a recognition of the tremendous amounts of structural violence that happen in communities of color. You know, whether those are Native American reservations or immigrant communities or urban spaces, white people feel real fragile right now. And they feel fragile because of the browning of America. And they feel fragile because the rich-poor gap has exacerbated and a bunch of the middle-class white people have lost the money that they, they had before the Bush administration. And it's fragile because LGBTQ rights are really transforming the way that we understand citizenship and the family, I think, in some progressive ways. And they're fragile because white women are doing so well in the workplace, especially after affirmative action. All of those things are creating a sense of precarity for white people. And so I think that part of the call to measure grit is it's masturbatory. It's navel-gazing. Like, look how strong we are. It feels very hollow and um, offensive to me. You know, because it really neglects notions of social violence that transcend whiteness and class privilege. And so it's hard for me to care about grittiness in the classroom because I think what's really being measured is whiteness. And so what's really being measured is privilege. It's interesting that you say it that way because grit is a way to like... How white am I? that you're... <laughs> right. Yeah. But I always read it as a way to disparage other people for complaining about their circumstances. So, you know, if, for example, you're complaining that there are biases against women or that you're being treated unfairly in a particular way because of your sex, or if you're facing, like, sexual harassment or racial harassment, grit is a way to say, like, you're whining about it? Just overcome it. Why don't you just overcome it? Yeah. And so... It's a way of minimizing the fact that there are structural injustices built in the system because it's like, minimizes those um, structural injustices and also asks the individual to overcome it, to like operate in the system despite those injustices, which are like way bigger (laughs) than anyone who's like just overcome it realizes. I mean, that's why I think... Grit is hyper-individualized. And I also think that it's that those two things are related. The fact that I think that grit 
is masturbatory navel-gazing. And it's also deployed against people who are extreme victims of tremendous amounts of social violence. That's a reflexive property. It's doing both at the same time. I'm gritty. I overcame. I choose not to see my own privilege. You don't have grit, so you can't overcome. Our oppressions are similar. And that is like the logic of colorblindness and neoliberalism to me, is it, it does that double function. That hyper-individualism is not, it's, it's not that resilience isn't also an individual thing, because it is. I mean, to be resilient is to overcome in a different way. But I think that it is more productive as an affective sort of space. You know what I'm saying? It seems much more, it seems more positive to me. Say, okay, well, here's this horrible stuff that happens to me, and here's how I can keep going despite that. But that's not about uh, a, a denial of the material reality in which one is living. That's why I think grit is something white people talk about, and resilience is something that that poor people and brown people and immigrants and Native Americans and disabled folks and queer folks. Resilience is something that has to be cultivated as a survival skill. Grit is something that's like optional that you get praised for, and perhaps there's some material reward for, right? And in this right. abstract sort of individualist American dream way, resilience is like do or die. It's like uh, this is what this is what I had to do to survive. I innovated and I hustled and I, you know, worked around the system and I, I clawed my way through these obstacles that were, you know, that were insurmountable. And it's just by the luck of the draw or by circumstance mm -hmm. that I was able to get through. And here's what I've learned from that experience. And this is how it's shaped me. And the survival piece, I think, is transformative. Right. So like resilience in your reading is about the journey. Like it yeah. embraces like a full appreciation of the circumstances and like your particular movement <laughs> through it towards not even an outcome, but it's like an ongoing process. Um, I mean, this I study prison memoirs, you know, it's one of the primary sources that I write about professionally. And if you look at slave narratives or prison memoirs, which are functionally very similar genres, those books are so transformative and so powerful and so well-read because they are transformational narratives of resilience. They are longitudinal, chronological studies of a person's life and all of the horrible things that happened to them and the way that they used that knowledge and then communicated it to a broader audience so that more people could benefit from the decisions that they made. That is resilience. That is not grit. That's not grit, that's resilience. That's, here is how I innovated and stayed on my toes despite all this horrific violence and structural oppression, this is what I did with that knowledge, and here maybe it can help other people. Grit is not about transmitting ways to work around the system to others. It is not a communal, collaborative kind of spirit. It is, it is that hyper-individualism. So for me, if I think about, you know, grit and resilience as a kind of, as a dialectical pair that are constantly in conversation, grit most closely aligns with leaning in and resilience most closely aligns with leaning back because grit is about doing what the structure says and overcoming it. You know, like I was saying about, you know, the tremendous amount of violence that happens in American workplaces. Leaning in is saying, okay, well, I can, I can take on more violence and still get through. Look at how gritty I am. I should be rewarded in some way for my ability to survive this tremendous amount of bullshit. And resilience is saying, whoa, here's all this horrible stuff. How can I, you know, move through this moment in a way that 
can hopefully preserve some sort of emotional, intellectual, political integrity. And I need to lean back to be able to see what that those avenues are. I think resilience isn't about like achieving outward outcomes. It's about like, it is about moving through circumstances and navigating them in particular ways that has like a more nuanced outcome on Mm -hmm. your life and emotional state. I do question resilience in some ways Mm -hmm. as it relates to lean back because I do think that it's not always possible to be resilient. I don't want to relate a lack of resilience to a failure. I'm curious what you think about people who aren't resilient and where they fit in into our narrative. I I was reading an article the other day that was, it was something about like how to survive solitary confinement and like, what is it to ask someone to be resilient in what are essentially inhumane conditions? So the people that had, successfully gone through, you know, successfully a really in air quotes. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So what I mean is people who came out of solitary confinement with most of their personality and mental health intact and no one comes out with it completely intact. They do not. Oh, right. But people who were are like perceived as resilient and celebrated in that way. But it's like, wait, what about, I mean, those people who had, completely normal and valid response to being isolated for 23 hours a day and then mistreated in the times when they they were in contact with other people the outcomes which are like psychosis and having your social and like emotional skills deteriorate like that's an, a valid outcome to inhumane conditions and so i have a sort of problem with like resilience or like the perception of resilience, because I think sometimes there are systems and institutions that can be perpetuated because, because of resilience narratives. Yeah, I think you're right. I think part of it is like, even with the example of the slave narratives or the prison memoirs that I study, those are still very exceptionalist discourses. There's a part of which just by their genre, they still fit into the American dream sort of, you know, rubric. Uh, And I think you're right that there is the potential to see resilient stories as normalizing structural violence. I'm not quite sure how to get around that, except that the more information you have to make the decisions, the better off you're going to be. If we move from the prison back to the school, which is not a a hard (laughs) maneuver because they're so, so similar structurally, I think about my students and the kinds, how many students that I've had over the last almost 20 years teaching at Research One institutions. And the Research One matters because more is demanded of the professors and the students are doing more research. And it's a very different kind of educational trajectory in a Research One institution than it would be in a private school, whether it's conservative arts or liberal arts. When I think about the students that I've had in the last 20 years, the reason that professors say that they want resilient students is because those students have the ability to bounce back from failure. And I feel like we are sort of ending up at the end of this conversation where we began, which is this hyper-competitive culture that demands so much achievement is making people neurotic and depressed and anxious. 
and they feel like every part of their life is precarious and things feel super fragile and that it could be lost at any time. And that's magnified, especially for white people who are mostly filling the colleges in terms of whether or not there's going to be a future that looked like their parents' past. And that's not happening for them, right? Because America is not going to be as white as it was when their parents were their age. And they're not going to have the kind of education or financial attainment that their parents were able to enjoy. You know, they're not going to have Social Security. It's, it's entirely likely that with the GOP government, certainly in Congress, that we could lose that safety net. So, I mean, there are very real reasons for people to feel that sense of anxiety that we talked about in season one. And I think that that leads them to a place where they literally can't, they can't function. For professors, and I think probably for managers too, they're like, well, we all have to function under this horrible system in varying degrees. And so the people that I want to work with are the people who are going to be able to navigate it and innovate on the fly when the shit goes down, when it gets real, when it gets difficult, when it gets hairy, when it gets ugly and mundane and brutal and those things. That's a totally unfair expectation but I think is one that is grounded in a, a sense of practicality where, just as you said, even the people at the top feel frenzied and pressured and like everybody's a hamster running on the hamster wheel. My main problem with that resilience narrative is when all of that anxiety and all of the problems that are like obstacles that you're working through, when those things get ignored or sidelined or minimized and then yeah and then if you aren't resilient or you stumble or there are like problems that arise and those can happen for a number of different reasons then you get blamed oh I and then those other things are like mm-hmm, <laughs> it's like oh wait but like the thing that they tripped over was a lot bigger yeah. than it looked like it was a glacier and there's just a lot of stuff that you had crammed under the surface your expectation is to like be on the surface already, but even getting on the surface in the first place, given oh, yeah. all of the shitty circumstances, even as a relatively privileged white person now, it's still not, still not easy. The obstacles grow bigger and bigger in other circumstances. I mean, I mean, you're, the impulse to change the frame away from resilience and towards, say, empathy, I think is a good one. I mean, the reason that we don't measure empathy and talk about it in pop culture the way that we are grit and resilience right now is because that's not a value people want to have. They don't want to give a shit about their neighbors. They don't want to participate in community activities that make the culture better for everybody, especially the people who are struggling the most. That is not, that's not like the American spirit. The American spirit is greedy and it's petty and it's punitive and it's gotten more so. Those parts of the personality of the American character expand and collapse to some degree. But at this point, it's been an expansion of those negative emotions that cult of the hyper-individual that Reagan cultivated so clearly. That has transformed the kinds of values that we place on the affective behavior of our citizens. So does it surprise me that people want to measure how gritty they are? No. Is it a travesty? Yes. Can we correlate it to the market and the way in which we imagine ourselves as a nation? Absolutely. Absolutely can. But I mean, without a massive change in values that I think functionally will only happen with a massive economic collapse or an ecological disaster, 
I think resilience and grit and then the things that they contribute to the culture are here to stay because I don't see a kind of space where there are people who are encouraging this conversation, except in small places. Like we live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is a relatively close knit community that has these values. Why? It's mostly white. It's, it's homogenous. It's racially homogenous. It's socioeconomically homogenous. So yeah, we've got a fantastic public library and a, one of the best farmers markets in America and, 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 and all of the things that white liberals love. And it's easy to get them here because everybody's on the same page because they're experiencing life in the same vector. And so they feel like they have a similar investment to the community as their neighbors because they look like them and sound like them and have the same sorts of feelings. That scales up when you go to urban centers. You know, where there are different kinds of people from all different kinds of places who have different expectations and cultural backgrounds and educational attainment and incomes and mobility and, and, and those things, those things cannot be overcome so easily. And so that's why there's more strife and more conflict. And it becomes more difficult then to push collective values in urban spaces or spaces that are much more heterogeneous than they are in a place like Fayetteville, Arkansas. And that seems to be particularly traumatic. And when I think about education and I'm thinking about like, you know, historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, and how tremendously underfunded they are, they serve an, it's such an important function to have black colleges that serve populations of black students. I mean, that is an incredibly important function given the history of this country and the tremendous brutality of whites against blacks, particularly in the South. And to see those kinds of spaces eroded and their funding eroded is really damaging. Because if we want people to actually be resilient, then they actually have to get the kind of education that they need. And for a lot of parts of the South, that is a historically black college and university that's going to provide the kind of space for them to grow and matriculate into the inventors and thinkers and problem solvers that, let's face it, the South totally needs. And in order to be able to see that, I think you have to be able to lean back, <laughs> you know, and say, here's the, here's how the picture looks different in different parts of the country. And this is why the values are different. I mean, I think some of this stuff is so hyper geographical in some ways. And then I think we can zoom out even further and say, look, here's some common themes across the country, but how we are overworking ourselves to death and the optimism of the ingenuity of the American spirit belies the tremendous brutality and violence that we are perpetuating on our neighbors. And so for me, you know, I just see grit and resilience as sort of inevitable outcomes of the culture that has been built here by white people that is particularly punitive. materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.